Hello again, everyone. John Porteous for the Levels Township Historical Society here, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. This week, Glenn Eberly and I are joined by Bob Smock Jr. Bob and his family uh, have a historical significance in the area, uh, not only from a fishing perspective, a fly tying perspective, a bow hunting perspective. Uh, and just the intermingling they've done throughout their lives uh, with many colorful characters. So Bob's been kind enough to share some of those anecdotes with us. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Bob, you, you come from a, a very, very famous family um, in there with the Madsons and the Borchers and the McLeans and Stefans and Wakeleys and Babbitts. Um, we would like to have you tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like to grow up in the Grayling area amongst those uh, famous uh, Osabo families uh, and uh, talk a little bit about uh, your, your, your brothers and, and uh, growing up uh, as the son of Bob Smock. Well, it was, uh, it was a wonderful opportunity, and uh, I am still blessed by it, um, blessed by it to this day. I remember being uh, a little guy that uh, grew up with uh, – uh, a fly rod, a bow and arrow, and a baseball bat, and it was fun. It was a good life. It was uh, being a kid in uh, in the 50s and and early 60s was uh, a great life in Grayling. And of course, that uh, that greatest generation from World War II had just come home, and our country was waking up to all kinds of new opportunities and. Life was life was fun. It was sort of like a father's no best kind of atmosphere in Grayling, Michigan. But uh, um, my dad, I was uh, just a just a little guy. I was the oldest of seven children in my family, but I was probably only about I'm going to guess seven, eight, nine years of age when he began to meet with Clarence. Um, Roberts and learned to fly tie. And he, uh, I, I can still remember it to this day. I'm sitting at his knee as uh, Clarence Roberts was, was helping him with all kinds of, uh, of different things, uh, tying flies. And uh, my dad would go home and he, it seems to me like he even used to use uh, dog hair for some of his flies in the early days. And uh, um, really kind of became a pretty accomplished tire over the years. And it was really, uh, it was really a lot of fun. It was a good, oh, life. What a, great what a story. Life. Clarence, Clarence Roberts was his mentor for fly tying is what you're telling yeah. us. Oh my. Yeah, that's, I am. That's yeah. interesting. He, uh, you know, Clarence put his kids through college by tying flies and was a great fly tire. One of the, uh, one of the most significant, in the early days, uh, having that parachute top attached to all kinds of different patterns. But uh, from a standpoint of uh, the fly floating well and floating as it should, it was just a, a great concept that uh, that Clarence had come up with. And uh, my dad was, uh, was good friends with him, and it was kind of exciting to learn to, uh, to, learn to tie and uh, watch my dad move forward who just love fly fishing yep ah. well now you probably fished with a lot of those famous folks too didn't you uh you fished with uh, clarence roberts and and the madsons and, and mcleans and borchers any of those guys 
Yeah, I did fish with uh, I did fish with McLean. I fished uh, uh, with uh, Fred Bear one time, and mm. um, um, Stan Matson, and uh, and also with uh, with Jerry McLean. Of course, Jerry McLean was uh, was one of my mentors. What a what a character he was. He recently died a couple years ago. And uh, boy, do I miss him this time of the year. He was just uh, just a great guy. And his fly, you know, when you start talking about flies, Glenn, um, I think that, uh, you know, the three most significant flies that were, were tied in this area was the Borcher Special, the Robert Drake, and uh, the McLean Yarn Body, which Jerry tied out of uh, Army Fatigue sweaters. And those... Those are the most significant flies in the span of of my seventy years that uh, that I I think have been most significant to the fly fishing community. I mean, there's certainly there's others that are good too. Don't get me wrong, but I think those three those three are are terrific. And uh, folks that still tie those patterns today are people like Jerry Regan and Tim Neal, and they are not only great fly tires, but great fly fishermen, both of them. And those three flies are uh, are used today still uh, very heavily by the guides on the Osable and the Manistee system, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, my uh, uh, they, uh, they'd cover the waterfront. If I could only go fishing and take three flies, it'd be one of each of those. And it would, uh, it'd be all I'd need. It'd be all I'd need. I remember as a young guy, about 27 years of age, I was just getting into the South Branch. It was just a couple of years before I started guiding. And I'm just getting in to go fishing. And here comes Jerry McLean and uh, one of his cronies in the front of the boat. And uh, we're over on the Mason track, and I'm just stepping into the water. And he says, hey, smock. He says, come on over here. So I, uh, I said, I said, what's going on? He, he says, come on over here. And uh, the guy with him got up off his seat and he opened up the live box and they had 15 trout in that live box between 14 and 19 inches. And they oh. were, they were fishing in the middle of the day. Oh my God. What a, On the what a guy. Oh yeah. Your dad said yeah. he was a really hell of a good fisherman. Oh, he was. He was. Uh, uh, Bob, I had the chance Mc- to interview him one time when we were doing an exhibit on fly tires of the Osable a number of years ago in our museum, and people told mm-hmm. me you have to see uh, Jerry McLean and learn about his uh, yarn yarn fly, and it was delightful. He he tied some yarn flies for me, and I watched him do it, and uh, he told me I need I need a badger neck, and a few days later I was up talking to. Uh, uh, Mr. Hanna up in Traverse City, and yes. I told him that Jerry McLean is looking for a badger neck, and he said, "Oh, here, you take this one down to Jerry with my uh, with my best regards." So I was able to deliver a badger neck to Jerry McLean from uh, from Ralph Hanna, wasn't it, Ralph? I think it was. I Ralph can't Hanna. remember. I can't remember the guy's first name. I remember the last name Hanna, and he was uh, he was quite a guy, without question. A- but. Uh, and yeah. I think it was interesting yeah, yeah. that apparently uh, uh, what uh, what I heard was that 
Jerry McLean had his wife unraveling those uh, surplus army uh, army drab uh, yep, green yep, off letters. Yeah. And she'd unravel yep. the yarn. He tied the yarn flies with uh, with balls of that uh, 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 leftover sweaters from World War II. It's a great story and yeah. a good fly. Oh, it's probably in my life the most significant fly. Period. It is a great fly. And uh, Jerry, when he worked out at Camp Grayling, oh, once or twice uh, a week. In the afternoons, colonels would come by and they'd say, uh, "Mr. McLean, you're supposed to come with me uh, today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you work with me." And they would have Jerry McLean take him fly fishing in his riverboat. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was always, it was always kind of a grin. But what a, what a good fisherman he was. And he, uh, you know, I mean, he goes way back. He was one of, he clearly was one of my. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, and a very, very good one. And, uh, so was, uh, so was Bernie, Bernie Fowler. I mean, Bernie Fowler was a, a man's man in my book. I mean, I see this guy stand out in the back of the river boat and have two people in the boat and take them upstream as easy as somebody might be paddling a boat downstream. Mm-hmm. Just an amazing guy. Just an amazing guy. And he was quite a marathon uh, a champion, wasn't he, Bernie Fowler? Yes, he was. Yep. Marathon. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's it's people like that that uh, you know create the memories of this beautiful river system, and and often you know often as I am on the river, I can't help but uh, but honor their memories. You know, I mean, having read the book The Old Asabo many times and growing up with the Borchers and Matsons and so forth, as you were sharing earlier. Um, wow. It's, uh, it's a real, uh, privilege to, uh, to do that. You know, it, uh, God's great outdoors is just that. What a place we have here in, in the Grayling Lovells area. Outstanding. Isn't that the truth? John, you had a chance to uh, meet uh, uh, Bob's father a few times, didn't you? I, I have, in fact. It was a very kind and gracious gentleman. Um, uh, when I was starting out my my fly fishing quest, he was uh, he was very good with knowledge and uh, uh, you know selling me flies and showing me a technique or two that uh, I find useful to this day. So, uh, heck of a guy. um, Well, thank you, Bob. I do have, I do, yeah, I do have a question for you, Bob, because you know we're we're talking about a lot of uh, names that are known uh, in Grayland and beyond. Uh, Am I correct in understanding that um, your father worked for Fred Bear, um, Mm -hmm. the archer and, and the manufacturer? Yeah, he worked uh he worked for Fred Bear for uh 29 years and um you know really uh he and many of the other post World War II guys, Howie Hatfield and uh many many others were uh were employees over there and uh yeah, he he had a special relationship with Fred. Of course, Fred wasn't thought of in those days as a legend, like he might be in, in these days, he was just a, 
a regular guy who was a very successful <laughs> businessman in the world of uh, of archery and bow hunting, and he was just uh, a kind and good, benevolent guy. What a lot of people don't know about Fred Bear is he may have liked fly fishing better <laughs> than uh, uh, than bow hunting, which is almost hard to believe, but he was caught in it. He loved it. Bob, your One dad, of his favorite... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. Your father told me that when I was in his fly shop one time, and I think he had a picture of Fred Bear, uh, as I recall, with a, a fishing hat and a, hank, a bandana around his throat, and he was threading a uh, fly on a piece of tippet. And I think your, your dad said, Fred Bear... Now, he said, Glenn, don't you tell anybody this, because Fred Bear didn't want anybody to know it, but... Uh, Fred Bear would rather go trout fishing than, than hunting with a bow. That's a true comment that your dad gave me probably back in the 80s. I'll never forget yep. it. No, that's, uh, that, that, that really is true. In fact, as, uh, as a comical kind of part of things, half comical, half serious, uh, June and July's were kind of tough around. Sales seemed to fluctuate because of the caddis hatch, which is now referred to as the hex hatch. But back in the day, they referred to it as the caddis hatch, and Fred Bear had the uh, sales department create something called the caddis meter. And the the purpose of the caddis meter was to be able to pinpoint where the hatches were going to be, what time they would start, what time they would be over, so that the employees would not gather all day long trying to try and figure out where they were going fishing and needed to exchange stories to uh, to get it right. So the cast meter was designed to pinpoint things, and it's really quite a comical uh, quite a comical uh, piece because it uh, it really it really was a grin, and and uh, you know everybody was fishing till one two in the morning and. And uh, they were coming in a little late, and if they were coming in on time, it took them a little while to get going. And Fred Bear was probably uh, one of the biggest abusers of that too, because he he loved to uh, loved to loved to fish that hatch. A lot of fun. I remember seeing a picture of the caddis meter at your dad's store, as I recall, in his shop. I mm-hmm. think he had a didn't he have a big gangly arm sticking up that was supposed to point somewhere. Yep, he did. He did. And uh, uh, my my brother has the caddis meter, I think, in, in his office, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, let me just read uh, a, a couple brief statements on the caddis meter, the, if I may. Uh, sure. The caddis meter was a product of bare archery. Uh, it had been de- uh, designed to improve the morale of our employee, help the quality of our products, prevent air and water pollution, but most of all, to contribute to peace and harmony in the homes of our employees. Before this great invention of all the problems that confront and sometimes include management here at Bear Archery, the caddis fly has been the greatest. During June and part of July, when the big hatch is on, our good employees race home at 3.30 sharp and are immediately hard to put to tie enough caddis flies for the night coming. At about 7.30, having kicked all the kids out of the way and cowed the wife, they sally forth at high speed 
polluting our air to a spot selected only after a great many huddles throughout the day with the horde of experts here at Bear Archery. Our good people flail the water, leave their files and tr- their flies and trees, stir up and pollute the stream to return home late at night, hopefully rise sleepily the next morning, at least those who have not become lost in the woods at night. The caddis meter eliminates this confusion. It pinpoints the hot spot for the evening. A radio transmitter, this is the description of it, gentlemen, a radio transmitter is mounted on a stake driven into the stream bed. From this stake, an arm extends on which there is the best uh, imitation of a seductive female caddis fly that can be produced by our best fly tires. The stage is set. Under cover of evening darkness, usually about 10 o'clock, the male flies begin their mad flight in search of female company and zero right in on our decoy. Alighting nearby and their coy approach to rapid compatibility, our hero fluffs his feathers, blinks a shameless eye, and wiggles his tail with a hiya nod of his head. Naturally, there's no response from our dummy. This sets him in a frenzy and body temperatures begin to rise as our instrument takes over. When a reading of 212 degrees is reached, the transmitter's triggered to tell the world that the hatch is on. These cattle meters are placed at strategic spots on all our rivers in the county. Each one is a different wavelength. Fishermen spend their evenings at home where they should be while waiting for the beat from their receivers that will tell them where the hungry five-pound trout are eagerly awaiting their flies. The sheriff department is equipped with receivers also, and when a unit spills out the message, deputies are dispatched in far fast cars to handle traffic at strategic spots. On their return, they do a search and rescue for all of those fishermen that were lost in the woods. But anyway, that's kind of a – I didn't mean to read all of it, but it's sort of that a description of tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, now who wrote that, Bob? Do you know? Uh, Fred Bear. Oh, Fred Bear wrote that? Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Those are Fred's. Uh, yeah. Yep. And uh, it, uh, it really was a, a tongue-in-cheek, but they had, uh, they had a great time. The, um, the other thing I wanted to bring up about my dad, if I might real quickly, is uh, um, when my dad and I and my Uncle Jerry – we bought the old. We bought Dad Hansen's store in downtown Grayling, and we changed the name to uh, the Old Asable Sporting Goods. And we had the most fun you could ever imagine for about four years, and uh, we we absolutely loved it. It was a, a gathering place for all kinds of people with a big round oak table and a cup of coffee and a fly tire or two, always tying flies. I think it was my dad primarily, and he and Tim Neal tied most of the flies for the old Asabo. But, oh, it just puts a smile on my face when I think back to those days. My dad just uh, just loved it, just he, loved it. And uh, he he uh, really had uh, had enjoyed that an awful lot. And, and when we sold the old Asabo, Kmart had come to town and the handwriting was on the wall. And so we sold that. But as we left the old Asabo sporting 
goods store. Uh, my dad had become quietly a famous fly tire. My uncle Jerry Joe had quietly uh, become a hackle expert with the Sabo hackle and right birds out of Connecticut. And, mm-hmm. um, and I had become a guide. So that sort of that store set the set the stage for so many things in fly fishing, and uh, I mean for our family, and it uh, it was a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing. That's well, a great sure. story. Yeah. It's it's ahead of our time, John. You and, and, and uh, for you and me, but oh uh, yeah, where, where was that store exactly? Well, it was uh, it was right next. There was a store between Chief Shotmagun's Hotel. Uh, the next store coming towards the stoplight was called Behringer's, a clothing store that eventually was purchased by uh, Harry White, the guy who owned uh, Shotmagun's Hotel. And then the next store was uh, uh, Dad Hansen's, and we we had uh, we had purchased that as uh, as a way to. Uh, to get my dad back in uh, in the middle of a whole bunch of things. When when Bear Archery left, they left, boy, it seems to me like it was about 1978, and they invited my dad to go along, but he just, uh, Florida was not his thing, and, you know, it was a great opportunity in some ways, but he he respectfully declined and wished everybody well, as they, as many people went to Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And continued working for Bear Archery, but uh, so we had sort of a, a pick-me-upper uh, when we bought the sporting goods store, and it was it was wonderful. My dad just uh, just loved it. It brings a smile on my face every time I think of it. it. Really does. I would love to have been there, John. You too, I'm sure. Oh, uh, without question. <laughs> we could use one of those big round tables with a few fellows tying flies these days. Yeah, we should have a place in the museum to do that. There we go. But that, that, that's fun. I, you know, your dad's shop was a special place, and a friend of mine told me about uh, this fellow in Grayling that ties flies. He's a really neat old guy, and he's very helpful. And I said, who, who do you ta- what are you talking about? Because I only knew about uh, um, the old Osable at the time, which was, uh, uh, what was it? Before? Well, the fly factory. Yeah, the fly factory, and then yeah. Gates, of course. And I didn't know about your dad. Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. cross Well, there yeah, the folks the folks that uh, purchased the fly factory, I knew them, and there were five or six of them at the time. And one of them had come to me, and they said, "Hey, you know, Bobby, do you do you would you mind if if we use the name the old Asabel? And uh, you know, I thought about it for a minute, and I said, "You know, I I said no. I said I I don't mind, and I I said if my dad were living, I said I don't think he would mind." And uh, so we passed along to them the name, the oldest Sabo, and we gave to them to use all of the old pictures that we had in our store, uh, the oldest Sabo sports shop. And uh, mm-hmm. so it was a really cool continuation oh, on with, uh, uh, with my dad's legacy, if you will, or whatever we want to call it. I don't think anybody was looking for a legacy, but uh, I guess that's a word that maybe fits. But uh, 
I used to get such a big charge out of him. I would I would come in on a, a Saturday morning and he'd be at a round table with a whole bunch of people talking and carrying on and inevitably there'd be a few sports writers if it was in the middle of the hex season and he's talking and he's he's weaving all kinds of old time tales and Fred Bear stories and and then he'd, he'd end by giving them advice as to where they uh, where they should go and what they should use and yada yada yada. Yep, anyway, yep. one morning <laughs> one morning after they cleared out, I looked at him and I, I smiled and said, I said, wow. I said, you sure give an awful lot of advice on fishing for somebody that hasn't fished in 25 years. <laughs> and he, he looks at me and he smiles. And uh, I, I said to him, I said, I said how, do you, how do you do that? And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, Nothing's changed. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so I got that's, I got a big a big charge out of his timeless advice, and he was he was <laughs> on the money. Yeah, sure, he's right. Nothing had changed, and he didn't fish. I remember talking to him about that in his shop, and I said, "Now are you fishing?" He says, "No, no, I I I just tie flies, and I I'm, my fishing days are over, but uh, I stay in tune." He said, "They say he gets all kinds of reports, and everybody talked to to Bob, your dad, about." Uh, what's going on and where. So he, he was a, a, a receiver of information and then obviously passed it on. So, but, but yeah. what I want to... Well, it, 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 would, it would get to the point if I had a good night the night before, I'd have to watch what I told him the next morning. He'd say, hey, <laughs> he said, how was your fishing last night? I said, it was pretty good. He said, well, where'd you go? And I, I would say, well, Who's going to learn where I fished last night, Dad, if I share it with you? You know, I'm just kidding him. And I, I would always tell him. But uh, now nah, I'd, I'd get a big charge out of him. He had a guy come in one time, a guy that lived out on the Manistee River, and he said, Bob, damn it, he says, I want you to come to my house tonight. He says, I want you to come to my house tonight. He says, he says I caught the 27 and a half inch brown. I hooked the other one a couple nights ago and it's bigger and I simply can't land it. He said, you can use the fly rod or you can hit, you can handle the shotgun, but we're going to get that son of a gun. So, <laughs> so my dad and I both looking at this guy incredulously and he was serious. He says, we'll get that damn fish. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> obviously, obviously, we never took him up on it. At least I don't think he did. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You know, I uh, I was sitting with Jerry Regan the other day, and I had Jerry Regan. I went over to pick up some flies from him. Um, I had a great deal going. My dad was a great fly tyer, and I loved to fish, so uh-huh. I abandoned the fly tying thing. And so, you know, I would I would get all my flies basically from from Tim Neal or Jerry Regan or from uh, Jerry McLean. And uh, uh, anyway, I'm sitting there talking to Jerry Regan, oh, a few days ago. And, you know, I said, this is, you and Tim are the closest rendition of the flies that my dad tied. And I said, those were the flies that were so effective and so good in the Brown Drake and, uh, and mm-hmm. Hex fishing. I mean, they were just great flies. Really were. It was a lot of fun. 
They sure hey, were. Hey, Bob, I got a question for you. Um, I seem I seem to remember it, and you you touched on it briefly, but you had an uncle that was uh, very involved with uh, chickens and uh, de- de- raising them to uh, have certain hackle attributes, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, Jerry Joe Smock. He uh, died a few months ago, um, but yeah, he uh, he had uh, connected with uh, another fella, and the two of them had acquired a certain type of species uh, uh, for fly tying out of Connecticut, and um, they had uh, Jerry had. Uh, eventually bought the other fella out and began his own Asabo River hackle. And uh, he, you know, he raised all those special birds himself, and he had a, a great way of uh, of uh, getting some outstanding hackle. I think that hackle is still even available today, if I'm not mistaken. I think one of his daughters, Dana, I think, has... Uh, a great deal of his hackle still left uh, still remaining yeah yeah well, I, I believe so we, inter- we interviewed jerry reagan a while back for uh the uh extension of the old osabo book which the anglers is going to put out and uh mm-hmm. i remember saying that uh he was delighted that he he got a whole bunch of uh of uh necks from uh from your it was your uncle jerry right right mm-hmm. and a whole yeah. bunch of Next, from your brother, when uh, uncle, when he was selling out uh, his stock, I, I actually visited him once, and I've got a couple of his necks still that uh, look pretty, pretty doggone good. But Jerry was delighted that he uh, was able to get uh, a number of these uh, necks that, uh, that that Jerry Smock had raised, and he said they're all gone now. But I, I didn't realize that there might be a uh, some some of that still in in uh, available. Yes. Yeah. I think I think there is still some available unless you know unless somebody came along and bought all of it and I don't think that happened not to my knowledge anyway but uh yeah I think, think that uh I think it is available yet some okay but I can get that okay. information to you um uh privately at another time I'll double check it and get back to you Glenn Yeah I'd like to know that Bob thank you Thank yeah, you you're you're really to, to follow up on that Bob did did uh and and this is where I'm a little vague, but didn't somebody have a trick with some tangerine colored writ dye for um tackle on the south branch for the sulfurs? That was for the sulfur. Yeah, that was Yeah, that was my dad. My dad uh he and Jerry had come up with that color and my dad um had created a rather famous sulfur uh, utilizing that uh, that color, and that was on the on the south branch, and you know a lot of different shades of color. Whenever you're fishing, are uh, you know really a great idea, um, and and some work a little better than others on uh, on different types of days. But uh, yeah, uh, that was my dad's sulfur, and it it was a good one, really. Yeah, good I one. just thought it was kind of cool because that that river does, you know, have carry a bit more stain with it, and Either the bugs, for whatever reason, look at just a little bit different than the mainstream. Oh yeah. Well, you know they they control the 
they controlled the depth of the South Branch up in Lake, Lake St. Helen by either putting boards in when times are lean and water has not, uh, we haven't had a lot of rain. And then when we get a lot of rain, they pull the boards and make the uh, South Branch very, very deep. I think it was regulated once once upon a time by certain court. I don't know what the status is of it uh, currently. I have no uh, no idea. But what a cool river! I had uh, I had guided a guy on the South Branch by the name of Bud Phillips, and he was an old codger at the time when I had guided him. And just when you think you you you've learned a lot and you know all there is to know about this river and that river you run into somebody that takes you to school. And uh, that happened to me with, uh, with Bud Phillips. He lived over there. Uh, he probably lived a, maybe half a mile or three-quarters of a mile up from Smith Bridge. But anyway, uh, I'm guiding him, and a uh, wonderful man, just having a great conversation with him about a wide variety of things. And then very abruptly, he'd say, stop the boat. I'd stop it. He'd say, uh, take it a little bit to the left. I want to cast way back up this little uh, little tributary or little creek that slipped around an island or whatever. I'd stop it. He'd cast up there. Bingo. Sure enough, nice brook trout would come up and take it. Boom. He'd, he'd <laughs> hook it. He'd bring it in. He'd say, okay, let's go. I'd go down the river a little bit further. And he'd say, whoops. Hold it right here. Turn the boat. I want to cast upstream behind this jam. And sure enough, he cast up behind the jam. Uh, first cast, nice brown came out. Boom. Hooks it. Brings it in. And, uh, you know, uh, he did that to me all up and down the river. And this is a river I thought I knew pretty well. It was in the Mason track. But um, anyway, boy, he, he really knew the river to school. Yep. And then... He says, okay, he says, I want you to pull over here. He says, we'll have lunch over here. I said, all right. So I pull the boat over there, help him out of the boat, secure the boat, and we get up, and we're having, uh, we're having lunch. And uh, as we're finishing up on lunch, he says, come here, Bob. And he motions for me to come over where he's standing. And so I walk about five yards over to where he's at. He pulls a tree branch aside, a spruce branch, I believe, and underneath it was uh, was a an old wooden cross, indicative of uh, a guy who uh, was an old trapper that lived in that uh, area, in an area just uh, just upstream from the chapel, and that's where he was buried. That's where his uh, his family had buried him, and I thought, oh. "Wow, wow!" It was on the bank. So, it's on the, well, on the bank. it was. Well, it was probably thirty yards in, under a tree. But oh, I forget the, the gentleman's name. But it, it, uh, you know, it just really, you know, kind of wow. brought you back to the reality oh. of. There's folks here before us, and here's where one of them are buried. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was amazing, really amazing. But now uh, uh, that guiding, you're, you're talking about some guiding, and, and again, uh, 
our theme this year was River Guides and Their Stories. And, uh, Bob, I, I don't know how many of the how many guides would have any more stories than you would. We've had some good ones. Uh, you've already given a couple. Um, when did you actually start guiding? I think you said somewhere around 27 or so. Tell, tell us about that. When yeah, you started... I, I... Yeah, I think I think I was 30 when I had begun, roughly 30 years of age, 31, somewhere right in there. And, um, um, you know, I had, you know, always fish, but I just, you know, I just hadn't been guiding. And as it emulated out of uh, out of the uh, old Asabo, you know, I began I began guiding then and uh, began guiding with Bernie Fowler and with Rob Woodland and you know, a variety, a variety of others. And then, you know, through the store, I began to um, accumulate uh, a whole lot of people that uh, uh, even to this day from the early 80s, they still fish with me this day. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're fishing in June and July, you you just you fall asleep with a smile on your face because you had such a wonderful evening with people that you've really gotten to know over the last uh, 39, 40 years. It's wonderful, mm-hmm. just wonderful, and really been blessed by the guiding. I mean, when I stop and think of it, you know, it, it changed my life. Some of the finest people I've ever met in my life, I met guiding, and uh, just just great folks. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, really a beautiful experience. And, and when I, uh, when I think about it, I, I, I just, uh, I'm just a very grateful guy without question, but, uh, yeah. Uh, guide stories. I guess I got a few of those. Um, I think, isn't there one about a, uh, a 20 inch trout and the big Creek lodge guys? <laughs> well, yeah, there, there, uh, there is. They, they were a big target. We, we met them when, uh, when we had the old Asable, uh sports shop, and uh, I remember we had some kind of a some some kind of a sidewalk sale going on out there, and all kinds of fly fishing stuff, and these guys pull in in a big Lincoln Continental and out steps Jake and Rex. And I'm thinking, ah, I said, here come a couple. And so anyway, lo and, be- lo and behold, I uh, engaged them in conversation and we are still fast friends to this day. And, uh, um, they are one wonderful. of the, uh, pardon me. I'd say they are a wonderful bunch of guys. And a hell of a lot of oh, fun. they are. <laughs> oh, they are. They are. Um, well, one of one of the things uh, uh, we we uh, started doing the annual float trips for Big Creek Lodge, and they would have five or six members, and we'd have five or six five or six guides, and uh, anyway, we would uh, we would take them each summer, and it was always just one guy to a boat like it was supposed to be. I remember mm-hmm. Jay Stefan saying, hey, it's only supposed to be one guy, one fisherman to a boat. Who slipped that middle seat in? You know, how'd that get started? You know, and and that was a, a discussion with Jay. And uh, anyway, 
we take these guys fishing in. It was one such summer night, and uh, uh, somebody had come up uh, at the last minute, and so we only had uh, four boats and four guides, and one of the guys from Big Creek Lodge had to go by themselves. And so they, you know, they took the lodge boat and they became the fifth boat. Well, Rex and I were were together in one boat, and I think we were probably fishing from, oh, maybe Parmalee down to Cherry Creek Road. Well, anyway, it, it was size enough to be a pretty good night, and we're catching, uh, we're catching some, uh, some nice fish ahead of dark. And uh, right at dark, the hatch starts to form, and looks like it's going to be lots of flies and lots of flies down there. Usually, man, you'd get into some nice fish. And so mm-hmm. we're we're fishing along, and uh, uh, Rex had just uh, just caught and released one uh, about 19 inches. We went around the corner, and uh, here was the guy in the lone boat, Jake. And uh, he was he was sitting in the middle of the river, anchored down, I think it was at the confluence where the Big Creek stream from uh, Luzerne came into the river. So anyway, he's hunkered down there. It's dark by this time. And, and we begin a conversation, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? Uh, yada, 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 and Jake says, I've got a big fish on. <laughs> so Rex and I are you know, sort of sort of quiet, thinking, you got a big fish on. Well, what's going on with the big fish? He says, I've had this fish on for 35 minutes. And, uh, and he says, I've got it. He says, it's down at the bottom of the river, and he says, it's stuck its jaw into the river, and he said, I can't, I can't move it. And uh, I said, well, hold the fly rod up higher and hit the bottom of the fly rod and see if that does any good. And it seems like he tried that once or twice, and uh, nothing really happened. And then Rex said, well, Jake, why don't you move to the front of the riverboat? And he says, Bob can let me out out of my front seat into the back of your seat, and I can hold the boat while you fight the fish. And Jake says, no, I'm not doing that. And, uh, you know, it seemed like a reasonable idea. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, Jake, Jake's a great, great guy and a great competitor, but he, he is stubborn as hell, and he's really set in his way sometimes. And anyway, that was one of those nights he was really set in his way. So uh, Rex and I put our boat over by shore. I don't want anything to, to do with this. This looks like, this looks like trouble. And so, you know, I'm saying to him, I say, is there anything we can do? Is there any way we can help you? And finally another 15 minutes goes by fighting this fish. The fish won't move. And he says, well, he says, come on over here. And hearing those words, come on over here. Those four words struck fear in my heart. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we, we pushed the boat over there, and he said, okay. He says, uh, he says, why don't you begin to lift the anchor, and I'll hold on to your boat. And so as I began to lift, 
the anchor in his boat, this fish wraps around the anchor, and as the old story goes, off flips the fish. So, anyway, oh, my God, here we were. And, you know, you just, you had an emptiness that not even darkness could fill. So you knew we had just lost a horse. So anyway, we, we end up fishing the rest of the way out a little at a little speedier pace. The hatches dissipated, and we get down to uh, Cherry Creek Road, and, and we get out. And, uh, you know, everybody felt bad about it, but, you know, the first idea was a good idea by Rex. But anyway, long story short, I'm uh, in line at uh, at a fast food place the next day about well I guess it was I take it back it was it was a couple days later and uh, I'm in line in this fast food uh, drive-through and I see one of my friends Joe and he was ahead of me and I said hey Joe I said how are you doing on the fishing and he said, oh, Bob, he said, I got a beauty last night. I said, you did? I said, where at? He said, he said I was fishing uh, Parmley to Cherry Creek. And I said to him, I said, did you catch that fish by the confluence where Big Creek comes in? And he said, how would you know? And I said, did it have one of my dad's hatchers in its jaw? He said it did. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, I'm not kidding you. He said, in fact, I've got pictures of the fish. So anyway, he gets through with getting his food. I get mine, and we pull over, and he takes out these pictures and shows me this 27-inch brown trout. Shows me the picture, and we talk about it a little bit more, and, and sure enough, it's the same fish that Jake has. So I, I, uh, I ring up Jenny, his secretary, on my phone. I said, Jenny, I said, it's Bob Smock. I need to talk to Jake. She says, well, he is in a very important meeting right now, Mr. Smock, and he doesn't want to be bothered. I said, I don't care. I said, you go get him. I said, you go get him and tell him that Bob Smock's on the phone. So she said, well... He's probably not going to like that. And I said, I don't care. I said, go get him. I need to talk to him, Jenny. So uh, silence for two, three minutes. He comes to the phone. He picks it up. And he immediately says, this better be good. I said, oh, it's better than good. <laughs> so anyway, it was so funny. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. I told him. I told him the story, and I said, I said, uh, my friend Joe even even gave me a picture of the fish that got away, Jake. So I'll save it for you. And, but, and uh, you actually gave it to Jake. I did. Yeah. I did terrific. when I saw him. Terrific. When I saw him next time, it was <laughs> uh, it was a grin. Yeah. Those those guys were uh, were always a lot of fun. Oh, I, I would. I would fish with them, and I'd fish with a with a group out of uh, out of uh, Mount Pleasant. And one such night, uh, 
fishing a hex hatch with a couple guys out of Mount P. We're just about to the landing at, uh, at the Wakeley Bridge area. And I guess we're fishing brown drakes, but anyway, we're fishing late. And uh, we had uh, maybe 150 yards to go to the landing. And the guy in the front hooked uh, the tip of a tree that was sticking out. And it was a very difficult spot. And so he has a flashlight in his mouth, and he's trying to get this this fly off the end of the tree. Well, meanwhile, it's deep enough. There's clay there. It's awkward. I slide over, and I'm right against the tree while he's trying to get the fly off the end of the tree. And uh, so we're sitting there, and uh, the fella in the middle said um, he was starting to get uncomfortable because it was taking longer than either of us thought it was going to take to get this thing. So this guy, Bill, has got this, uh, this light in his mouth shining on the fly, trying to get it, reaching for it, and unraveling the leader. Well, Sid ducks under the tree. We're sideways now in the river, and the tree is sideways. And uh, so Sid ducks underneath the tree, and I have a choice of either going out of the boat or going under the tree, too. So wisely, I decided to go under the tree, too, which sadly knocks the guy out of the front seat of the boat and we can, we're looking at him at, be, at 1.30 in the morning in about six feet of water with a flashlight in his mouth. And, it, I mean, it was, it was the funniest scene I ever had seen. But, I, you know, I didn't know these guys real well, and I'm really doing the best I can not to laugh because this, is, this isn't funny, but it is funny. And then finally, the guy just shoots up like a, a deep-sea diver and is just, coughing and sputtering and spitting water and all kinds of all kinds of stuff and finally the guy in the middle of the boat begins laughing really really loud which hides my natural urge to find some humor in this thing too but uh after we got done laughing i realized this is uh this is back in the early days where you didn't necessarily have your seats locked in my seat is is missing and uh my seat's gone so anyway this is the middle of the heck season and i you know i'm fishing every day and i'm thinking well this is funny but wow what am i going to do about that seat because i couldn't find it looked over looked around for it just nowhere to be found rolled downstream so we went to the landing and at that particular time we had we had a work pass program coming out of the out of the county jail and a big CETA program that was cleaning up rivers and access sites and lakes and streams and different party spots throughout the the county. So anyway, I ended up going to the jail and getting uh, two or three people out of jail to come down to that site, and I had them look for my riverboat seat as they were cleaning that day. And I finally got a call around two o'clock that they had found it. So how grateful I was. Oh, PT. 
Good so story. It's, uh, you got your, you know, back. it's, well, it's, it's crazy stuff. It's crazy stuff. But, uh, mm-hmm. we, we have had such, uh, such a good time on, uh, on, uh, on the river. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, it's a, a delightful place to be. And, uh, you know, I, uh, really love to fish the mainstream, the South Branch and the North Branch and the Manistee. They're all they're all great rivers. Probably my favorite at this point. For the last many, many years. But um one more story about the Big Creek Bowie. We uh my myself and, and a group of local people I have to stop you just a minute, Bob, and I, I have to give you fair warning uh, because I we we had an email the other day from uh, Rex Schlebaugh, yeah. and uh, he said uh, he had heard a podcast with uh, John Walters on it, and uh, Rex uh, Rex had said, uh, uh, "Hey guys, I, I've got some great stories of uh, some of the guides that I've had as uh, fishing guides on the river, and and you might enjoy uh, some of those stories." So, fair warning, Bob, you, you might <laughs> we might have Rex That's on okay. with some. Is that okay? Hey, no, that would be great. Hey. I love the guy. He's a he's a great guy. The, the whole group, Gary oh, yeah. Richards and Dimmer and Jake and Rex, they're all great guys. But uh, yeah. you know, but, but, we uh, we had we had begun the uh, fish hatchery project back in uh, oh, I don't know. It must have been must have been in the mid to late '80s, something like that. Anyway, every now and then we would have a big trout that would die in there because we, you know, just had trout in there for the summer months as a tourist attraction. And whenever a big trout would die, I'd get a phone call because, you know, I'd give it to somebody or whatever that wanted to mount it or just whatever. But um, I was getting ready to leave for a fishing trip with a friend out of Saginaw. And uh, I got a call that uh, a, a big fish had, had, uh, died so I went down and I picked it up and I ended up putting it in a cooler in the trunk of my car and I headed for McMaster's Bridge with my uh with my river boat and my friend and we dropped off my boat and uh and uh, we we went down and and uh, parked the uh, the trailer and the rig down at uh down at Parmalee Bridge I mean it was big fish time and everybody's after them and We'd had some conversation with the Big Creek guys about, boy, this is a this is a great time. The hatches are good. We're going to go down there and fish. Lo and behold, by the time we came back, um, those guys were dropping off their boat, and then they were gonna they were gonna do the same trip as us. So anyway, we get going, and uh, it's such a long float. You're you're probably both familiar with it somewhat. It's either long- feast or famine. You know, it's a, just a long, long float. But anyway, we did uh, we did pretty good. We had a good night. We, uh, you know, didn't catch anything particularly big or anything like that. But it was a good night of fishing. We came back and we went to our place at, at Silver Birch, which is just downstream from Big Creek, uh, Big Creek Lodge. And, uh, you know, I'm getting stuff out of my trunk. And I went, oh, my gosh. I got that fish in the cooler. So I said to Jim, who was with me, I said, hey, I said, we're, let's go see if we can 
we can have those boys at Big Creek. And so it's about one thirty, quarter to 2 in the morning. And uh, so we uh, we get up there. The outdoor lights on. They're still they're still up, having a drink, smoking a cigar, and they see us pull in. And this is uh, this. remember, we, yep. We, pardon me. Uh, this is the story I remember. Keep going. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> so we uh, we we're walking towards the lodge, and and I think it was Rex that came out and takes a puff of his cigar and sips his drink. He looks at me, and I look at him, and I said. We got a nice one. And he goes, oh. So Jake, by this time, has come out, and he's on the, he's on the porch. I've gone back into the, uh, the trunk, and I got the biggest net I could find at Silver Birch. It was huge. You could have caught a whale in it. Anyway, I, uh, I had that fish in that net, and I said, you guys aren't going to believe this story. Jake is going just bonkers. He goes, oh, my God, what a fish. And we go in, and we bring the fish into the kitchen, and he's going, oh, my God, this is just a hell of a fish. He goes, i got to hear this story. You know, and, and he's breaking out the best scotch, and he's pouring drinks for everybody. And he says, oh, man, he says, you got to take my picture with this fish. And so he grabs that fish, and he's standing there with a the fish and a big, a big smile on his face. I snapped the picture, and I said, hey. He said, maybe Jim ought to have his picture taken with it. I said, he caught it. He says, yeah, yeah. He says, that'd be all right, too, you know, or whatever. So uh, <laughs> we're sitting around drinking, smoking, laughing. I told the most outrageous story I could think of. When you have the fish, you can tell an outrageous story. Simple as that. <laughs> so we told just an outrageous story of how the fish went to one side of the river to the other and went way down and stuck its jaw down, and we hit the end of the, the butt of the rod, and it sprang back to life, and how I'd made one sweep at it with the regular net and realized I needed this big, big, long-handled <laughs> net that I now had. And I, I said, the fish came by again. I said, I took a scoop at it and got it. And I'm telling you what, we would have never gotten that fish if it hadn't been for that huge net. Jake was away. It's saying, I told you, Rex, I told you we needed a big net. I told you we need a big net. We're going to have to get one. You know, and this just goes on and on and on. And, I, you know. Stapleton and I are doing the best we can with a scotch and a cigar to, you know, keep from, yeah, really, really laughing about it. So anyway, the evening finally ends around three in the morning. We go home and he and I are, are, are uh, sitting around at, uh, at Silver Birch just roaring, saying, we got him, we got him and we got him good. And, uh, <laughs> So the next morning, you know, they said, hey, come on by for breakfast in the morning. We want to see that fish again. So, all right, all right. So we get up and we finally work, work our way back up there. And 
Donna Lane was a caretaker in those days, and she comes out and she goes, oh, Bob, she goes, I heard you guys got a big, big fish. <laughs> and I smiled and winked at her and said, yeah. Rex comes out, and he's walking towards me, and, and I'm walking towards him, and I went up to him. I turned to his left ear and said, we lied. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they, they knew at that time it was all a prank. So anyway, I had the fish mounted. I, had a, I was a commissioner at that time, and we had a, I had an official proclamation made for the wall at uh, Big Creek Lodge, and that's where that, uh, that's where that fish is hanging on the wall. Those were those were great times, but oh, yeah. when oh, you've got the got the big fish or the big buck, you can tell any story you want. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, fishermen are known right. to lie or, or fib a little bit, and and it's it's in our nature, I guess. They say, I don't know whether I lie because I'm a fisherman or I fish because I lie. I'm not sure which came first, but. Uh, Fibbing and, and the exaggeration that just seems to go hand in hand with this wonderful, wonderful sport. How lucky we are to be able to share it. Oh, aren't we ever? I mean, the, the, you know, the testament of a fisherman by John Volker is so, oh. so good. And, uh, oh, it, it says it all. It's, it's absolutely yeah. incredible. And, Nobody's uh, better. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you know, I, uh, I I had told you that how much I like the Manistee River. I've just got a couple of short stories I'll share with you if, if we still have time. I don't know where we're at on that. But uh, um, anyway, I was over there with, uh, with a good friend, Tom Smith, out of uh, Mount Pleasant. And he and I are, are sitting in the middle of the river, and it's not quite dark. And this monster fish begins to feed. And I said, Smith, I said, you got to get on this fish. He goes, I'm right in the middle of changing my hex fly. He said, I'll, uh, he says, I'm putting a spinner on. It's all right. Well, hurry up. Oh, this fish feeds again. I mean, we're within 20 feet of the fish, and this fish was so big when it fed, it actually sent current to the riverboat. And I'm sitting there in the back of the boat, and I'm saying, Tom, come on. You got to hurry up. This is a rare opportunity. He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. He says, I'm almost done. Oh, another big, big, big feed. And I'm thinking, hey, Smith, if you don't get this thing done, I am going to toss my spinner over that fish. I said, come on. So anyway, he finally gets it done. He casts over the fish. It doesn't take it. He casts over it again. Oh, it takes it. Takes it. He sets the hook. The fly rod is slammed down to the bow of the boat. That fish went 70 yards in seven seconds, taking oh. all his gear and busted him up. We were in a monster. Oh. Another night over there, the same, the same section, not the same place. I had a young guy with me, good fisherman. Both these guys were good fishermen. Kirk. Kirk was uh, the guy with me. I said, all right, Kirk. I said, I think we got a good one right in front of us. He said, all right. You know, and 
he cast a couple times, didn't get it to take us. All right, hold on, wait a minute. Let's see. Let's let him feed one more time and, and cast 30 seconds after that. So he does. Oh, nice fish, we can tell. So he times it out. He throws another fly. Oh, hooks it. This fish slammed his rod down to the bow of the boat. Now, I mean slam it, not a, not a BS job. Slammed it to the bow of the boat. He, he couldn't even lift it up before that fish had gone 60, 70 yards and took all his stuff with him. Well, those stories got to, got to a guy uh, that was from California that lived in the area, used to own Nash Camp and, and uh, a couple places. But anyway, he says, hey, he says, I hear about these big fish. He goes, I've caught lots of big fish. He says, I, uh, he says, I've caught this and I've caught that and I've fished here and I've fished there. He says, I want to go with you over there. So, all right. So we get over there and I'm listening to Tom. He's just, you know, he's being a little bit on the boisterous side, but a good guy. Anyway, we get over there and, uh, we get in to fishing for this fish that had to be in the seven, eight pound range. He hooks it, same thing, slams that rod right down. He stood absolutely no chance. These fish are just, they're incredibly big. This was way down on, uh, on, and it was just, uh, it was just a lot of fun. And uh, anyway, I had to stop at Ding, I had to stop at Dingman's bar and buy him a, a couple shots before we finally got back home. But that river over there is exciting to fish. It's really exciting to fish. God, that sounds but, uh, huge. What do you think that fish was? Was it in the 30-inch range maybe? I think so. You know, that's that's a guess, but it, you never hear the word 30-inch trout mentioned with any other river, inland stream trout anyway, without any other river except the Manistee River. In fact, um, in fact, the, big, the biggest inland stream trout that I have known about around here that was ever caught was caught by a guy by the name of Hubble. He worked for the DNR, and apparently they'd been doing some shocking up in the DeWard area. And he knew about where this big fish was. He was up there one night uh, in the hex hatch and it was about 9.30 at night and the hex are just just starting to fall out of the sky and he hears that big fish feed he gets over there he gets on it he throws a fly over it a couple times it finally takes it he hooks it he fights it and fights it and fights it and uh, finally ends up kicking it with his wader boots up on an island. This, this fish was 35 and a half inches long, oh my 19 God. inch girth, and weighed 15 and a half pounds. And it's a true story. It's not a BS story. He kept the fish. He, he mounted it. I don't think he's alive anymore, but he had caught that... Uh, back in the 60s, a monster. Carl Hubble, wasn't it? 
could have been. I knew his son, Roger. I can't remember his first name, but uh, at any rate, that was... uh, Oh, my God. That that was just a monster. What was the girth again? You know, pardon me? 19-inch girth? Yep, 19-inch girth, 15-and-a-half pounds, 35-and-a-half inches uh, long. And I had seen it. I had seen it mounted on his wall. So, I mean, it's not, this is not fabricated numbers. This is not mm. crazy garbage. But uh, oh, it, it might be really fun to have you read, um, maybe as, as a closure here, uh, The Testament of a Fisherman by, by Volker. Would you do that for us? You said you had it in front I of will. Okay. I do. Uh, before, before that, Bob, this has been wonderful. I think we're probably at the end of the time, John, aren't we? I, I think we are, but I let's let's go ahead and have him read the uh, testament because it's I, I think it's a fitting close to this interview. It's just been awesome, Bob. Great job. Yeah, thanks so much well, for all the stories, the memories. Uh, uh, the Big Creek Live guys will hear this, I'm sure, and uh, enjoy it just as much as the rest of our uh, podcast listeners. So, thanks for spending the time yeah. with us, Bob. Uh, uh, you are a very well-renowned uh, guide, and we appreciate the stories, the information, and we wish you the very best of luck. And here is Bob Smock reading A Testament to a Fisherman. I fish because I love to, because I love the environs where trout are found, which are invariably beautiful, and hate the environs where crowds of people are found, which are invariably ugly, because of all the telephone commercials cocktail parties, and assorted social posturing, I thus escape. Because in a world where most men seem to spend their lives doing things they hate, my fishing is at once an endless source of delight and an act of small rebellion. Because trout do not lie or cheat and cannot be bought or bribed or impressed by power, but respond only to quietude and humility and endless patience. Because I suspect that men are going along this way for the last time, and I, for one, don't want to waste the trip because mercifully there are no telephones on trout waters because only in the woods can I find solitude without loneliness because bourbon or an old tin cup always tastes better out there. Because maybe one day I will catch a mermaid. And finally, not because I regard fishing as being so terribly important, but because I suspect that so many of the other concerns of men are equally unimportant and not nearly so much fun. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Well, it's hard not to have a smile on your face after an episode like that, uh, and especially ending with the poignant words of uh, uh, John Volker. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, As always, if uh, you're finding pleasure in these, I hope you'll share it uh, with a friend or two and uh, selfishly increase our listenership a little bit. So, hey, until next time, mind your back cast.